What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Primetime Sports Podcast, hosted by Joey Malari. So in today's episode, I'm going to give you a breakdown of all of the news across Major League Baseball over the last day or so, starting off talking about the tragic night that the Los Angeles Angels had last night with both of their superstars going down with injuries, unfortunately. And it's just been the story of their season and the story of their franchise from the past few seasons, unfortunately. It just seems like they can never catch a break and they're cursed. I'll talk about that and everything that happened last night and break down the news with them. I'll talk about the Red Sox and how they performed this past weekend in the Bronx. They actually got a weekend sweep against the Yankees, which was great. I'll also talk about how the Red Sox performed in the first three games of their four-game series versus Houston Astros, which game four is today at 210. I'll give a preview of that game, and I'll also talk about the Yankees ending the nine-game losing streak with a win last night. The Washington Nationals extending Davey Martinez with a two-year extension as their manager. And then at the end, I'll also talk about Julio Rodriguez and his hot streak over the last week. He's actually had such a run here at the plate, been one of the hottest hitters in the game of baseball over the last week or so. So let's start off with the story with the Los Angeles Angels from last night. And their continual downfall and the curse that the Los Angeles Angels have had to go through during their tenure with Shohei Otani and Mike Trout. It's just the same story every single year with this team. Where you get a lot of hope, things are going right, you have the two best talents in the game of baseball in the same lineup, you get the expectation that they're going to be able to make the playoffs for once and be able to play meaningful baseball in October, which these two guys deserve it more than anybody in the sport, more than anybody in the game of baseball. Those two guys deserve to make it to October and be able to compete for a World Series. And unfortunately, the story around the Angels just got even worse yesterday. An abysmal 24-hour window and honestly a painful three weeks for this Angels franchise, who are now 5-15 and since the trade deadline which is the worst record in baseball since August 1st. But they also just had to place Mike Trout back on the IL. After they reactivated him yesterday, he's already shut down and placed back on the IL for at least 10 days. And then, to make matters worse, Shohei Otani is now done for the rest of the season as a pitcher as he tore his UCL in his right elbow, the same elbow that he got Tommy John surgery on in 2018 which is his pitching elbow. So it makes sense. You tear your UCL and your throwing elbow it was while he was pitching yesterday during the first game of their doubleheader versus the Reds. So a devastating turn of events there for the Angels in a disaster of a season and a disaster of like a five to six year window here with Shoei Otani and Mike Trout together. It continues to grow and day by day continues to get worse. And it's honestly sad because these two talents, Otani and Trout, they deserve to win. The two best talents in the game of baseball have been in the same lineup now for six seasons, and they just have never gotten any luck. And that's why I think the Angels are the most cursed team in the game of baseball. And if you look at the way things have gone for them over the last few years, they typically don't really buy the trade deadline because they're never really in it at the deadline. But this year, they made the decision to buy the trade deadline, and I supported that decision, and I still support it. Because when you look back at hindsight, yes, you're going to say, hey, the Angels are 10.5 games back right now with Shohei Otani and Trout back on the I.L., so what was the point of them buying at the deadline? When you look back at hindsight, everything's always going to be 2020 perfect vision. But the reality of the situation is this. You can't look back at hindsight. In the moment, right before the trade deadline, the Angels were three games back, and they made the decision to buy, and at the time, it was the right decision because they still had Shohei Otani under contract for another half a season at least with the hope of still trying to re-sign him in the offseason. They know if they traded him, he's not coming back in free agency. And they also knew they were going to get Mike Trout back at some point in August, Brandon Drury back at some point, which he's back now already, and Zach Neto back at some point as well. With Logan O'Hoppy coming back at some point as well. He's back in the lineup. So the Angels knew they had some pieces coming back at some point, And we're only three games out. So they said, let's go buy reinforcements at the trade deadline and try to make something happen. And obviously now the way things look, it looks like it was the worst decision the franchise could have ever made. 
but you can't look back in hindsight because you look back in hindsight, everybody's going to say they made the worst decision of all time buying at the deadline. But in reality, there were only three games out at that point and saw Shohei Otani still in his prime tearing up the game of baseball. They saw Trout coming back at some point, hopefully, and they saw some other reinforcements coming back as well. So they said, let's go buy the trade deadline and try to make a run in October because we're only three games out. And now when you look at it, the story just continues to get worse. Otani skipped a start last week due to arm fatigue, returned to the mound yesterday, but exited early. The Angels ran tests in between their doubleheader. From game one to game two, they ran tests in between the two games and saw that there was a tear in his right elbow that would end his season on the mound. And this was something I mentioned a few weeks ago to Mark Walsh. I said that I think Shohei Otani is going to get a record-breaking contract, which I think everybody in the sports world knew he was going to get a crazy amount of money. But I said my only worry with Otani is whether or not his arm can last for the duration of that contract. Because besides a 10-year contract, I don't know if his arm could last for 10 years. Considering he had major injuries his first couple seasons in baseball, and I was honestly avoided major injuries over the last few seasons, when you have an elbow injury, it typically comes back over time. When you get Tommy John surgery once, there are guys that get it a second time very often. So that's the issue there with the Otani situation. I thought there'd be a chance at some point he would have an arm issue again at some point in the future, especially considering his first few years in the game of baseball in the major leagues, he was struggling to stay healthy. But the last few seasons, he's miraculously stayed healthy and the game of baseball and honestly baseball across the entire world has benefited from it, especially with how big the World Baseball Classic was this past year, being able to watch him win for Japan. And now this brings into question whether or not his um and this current injury is going to impact whether or not he gets paid as much in the offseason. The way I feel about it is he's still going to get paid a ton, still get probably a record-breaking contract, but it won't be for as long. He might get $60 million per year for a five-year deal rather than an eight- to ten-year deal. I don't know. That's just a guess as of right now. We'll see how things work out, and I'll obviously have more predictions going into the offseason. But the way I feel right now is that Otani's still going to get a great payday. But here's the issue. If he does need another surgery on that elbow, realistically, if he gets Tommy John surgery, he's going to miss all of the 2024 season, and he's not back on the mound pitching until 2025. But that team that does sign him in the offseason would be getting him at the plate in 2024 as a hitter, as a DH, which is obviously a great ad considering he's the best hitter in the game of baseball. And when he's pitching, like he has been this past season, he's just the most dominant player that the game of baseball has seen since Babe Ruth. And you see something different every single day that Shohei Otani is on the mound or at the plate. And that's why I feel like when I had the opportunity to watch Mike Trout and Shohei Otani over the past few years, whenever they're on TV, I never took it for granted. Because you're watching two of the best talents in the game of baseball of my generation, and you're being able to watch them play together in the same lineup day in and day out, and you have a chance of witnessing history every single time that those two guys and their cleats touch the field. But to get back here about Shohei Otani and whether or not he's going to get paid, I still think he gets paid this offseason. But the reality of the situation is this. If he were to miss 2024 and return in 2025, there's a chance he misses out on a little bit of money. I still think he gets a record-breaking contract, but he's going to miss probably a little bit more of money because of the risk there is there with the injury, with the elbow injury and the surgery that now he probably has to undergo if he were to get Tommy John surgery yet again. But I think this situation could be like Kevin Durant going to the Brooklyn Nets, which is a little bit different because Shohei Otani is still going to be playing DH next year and hitting for whatever team signs him. Even if he were to miss all of 2024 in the mound, he's still going to be DHing. But Kevin Durant went to the Brooklyn Nets knowing he was going to miss a full season recovering from his Achilles injury. Still, it didn't stop Brooklyn from signing him to a long-term max deal. I think the same thing goes here with Shohei Otani. He's going to get paid a ton of money, but that team that's going to pay him knows he's going to probably miss all of 2024 in the mound, which by the time the offseason comes around, probably in the next week or so, we'll know whether or not he needs Tommy John surgery or not. 
So I guess you'll know before then. But the way I feel about it right now, I still think he gets paid. I think he probably does miss the 2024 season. When you have a UCL tear, typically you still need to get Tommy Jones hurt, especially if you tore it already once before. Which maybe there is a chance that it could just heal itself on its own. We'll see how things work out. I don't really know too much about the situation other than what Perry Manazian was saying last night in his press game conference after the Reds-Angels game. But it's obviously a tough situation here. And this is the first time that Shohei suffered an injury since basically the 2020 season. He's missed some games, but nothing crazy. No major injuries. He's really avoided injuries for the past three seasons. And I know a lot of people are going to look back and be very critical of Perry Manazian. But when I look back on August 1st, the Angels were only three games back of Toronto for the last wildcard spot in the American League. And even though they had a very tough stretch in the month of August, and I mentioned it many times in many episodes I recorded before the trade deadline, I said the Angels are going to have a very tough stretch in August. But where they currently stood at that point, they're only three games out on August 1st. Three games back of the last wildcard spot in the American League with a lot of games left to get back on track. At that point, on August 1st, the Angels were 56-52. and 52. So they played 108 games to that point and still had 54 more games left. And were only three games back of Toronto. So they had a lot of time to make up ground. And even though they had a tough schedule in August, it didn't make sense for them to completely rip things up when they're only three games out of the last wildcard spot in the American League. And for reference, when you look back on August 1st, the Angels were 56-52. and 52. They had a game better of a record than Seattle did at that point. Seattle was, I believe, 55-52 and 52 at that point. And the Angels were 56-52, and 52, so they had another win over Seattle at that point. And obviously, Seattle's been one of the hottest teams in the game of baseball and finds themselves in the mix of everything in the American League wildcard standings. They're right now holding a wildcard spot in the AL. But for reference, though, the Angels at that point had a game of an advantage over Seattle. And things really did work out for Seattle, where they currently stand. Right now, they hold a wildcard spot in the American League. But for the Angels, they had a very tough month of August. But at that point on August 1st, they still had hope that Mike Trout would be back at some point in August. The same goes for Brandon Drury, Anthony Rendon, Logan O'Hoppy, and Zach Neto. And they were 56-52 and 52 on August 1st, just three games back of Toronto for the last wildcard spot in the American League. And even with the hottest schedule in the month of August, it didn't make sense for them to trade the best talent that the game of baseball has ever seen when they're only three games back of the West Wildcat spot in the AL. Yes, the return probably would have been great, even though it was a one-year rental, or just a half-a-season rental, just a 50-game rental that Otani would have been, it still would have been a great addition for any team that's trying to make a postseason run. But at the same time, Perry Manazian, the Angels GM, took a Hail Mary shot down the field and chose to close the phone on any Shohei Otani trade offer with the idea of buying at the trade deadline, since he believed it was the best move for the franchise at the time. And at that moment, I agreed with him. Looking back in hindsight... He is going to be torn to pieces for years. But how can you anticipate such tragic events happening and everything falling to pieces every single second for this Angels team? When you're only three games out with Shohei Otani and Mike Trout in your roster, you can't just sell. You can't just sell. 54 games left in the season. You're three games out, especially with some reinforcements coming back from injury at some point, like Mike Trout, like I said. You can't just sell at the trade deadline. But when you look back in hindsight, everybody's going to rip Manazian to pieces for years, especially if Shohei Otani leaves in the offseason as a free agent. But if he does come back as a free agent, he salvages the situation just a little more considering if you trade Shohei Otani the deadline, he's not coming back as a free agent. But if you keep him through the trade deadline, try to make a run in October, maybe he stays around. And I still think there's a chance that he stays around. And I would say the chances of Otani staying around now in Anaheim are higher today than they were yesterday. Because I think the Angels would be more willing to give him a higher paying contract than some other teams would. Because the Angels have already been with him now six years. And they know everything he brings to that franchise, whether it's international fans, 
whether it's excitement every single night, even when, even when the Angels are losing, you have a reason to watch their games when Shohei Otani is at the plate. It only made sense to them at that point to buy the trade deadline. And I know a lot of people are going to be disagreeing with me about this, and that's fine. But the way I feel about it is when you're three games out with 54 games to go and you have the two best talents in the game of baseball on your roster, how can you sell? How can you sell? How can you sell? And I know a lot of people are going to disagree with that, and that's fine. I mean, no one's going to ever agree with every single one of your opinions. That's sports. That's the world in general. You're not going to agree with everybody always, and that's fine. You just have to respect other people's opinions. I respected Paramedazian's decision to go all in, and I respect him even more now, even though things are tough. And he had to get up last night in the uh, post-game presser and talk about this whole situation. He answered every question honestly, and you can just tell that's a broken man because of everything he's had to go through now over the last couple seasons with the Angels as the general manager. He decided to buy the trade deadline, and he's going to get absolutely ripped to shreds for years in the media. But what happens if the Angels somehow had a great month of August and went on a miraculous run and won 18 games? Like I said, hey, what's, what are the chances they win 18 games in their 28-game stretch? A tough 28-game stretch in the month of August. I said, what happens if they win 18 of those games and go 18-10? They're going to be in a position by the end of August going into September to try to make the playoffs. And even though they didn't do that 18-10 stretch in that 28-game window... What is it they somehow did? People will be looking at this moment saying that Perry Manasian was a genius of buying at the trade deadline. If the Lucas Giolito trade worked out and the CJ Crone and Randall Grigic acquisitions worked out and the Ronaldo Lopez acquisition worked out, which it kind of has, honestly, has been one of the better acquisitions he had at the trade deadline. Mike Moustakas has been solid as well. But if all of his trade deadline acquisitions worked out, Eduardo Escobar included, and his decision to keep Shohei Otani actually worked, and the Angels were in a great position right now to make the playoffs, people wouldn't be looking at this moment right now where we currently stand on August 24th saying the Angels made the worst decision. But the people are looking back right now at the decision to buy the trade deadline, knowing the Angels are 10.5 games back of the West Wildcat spot in the American League and are currently 5-15 and 15 since the trade deadline. So when you look back at hindsight, your vision's always going to be perfect. You're always going to say, I should have done this and I should have done that. But I still stand on the Paramedasian when he decided to buy the trade deadline. Because if I was Paramedazi and I was in that Angels front office, I would have seen Shelly Otani and Mike Trout together on the same roster and said, hey, we had one more half-guaranteed season of these two guys together. Trout will be back at some point. Let's try and make a run. It's not impossible to make a run. You're only three games out. You're still very much in the, in the mix. You are still very much in the, in the mix. But where they currently stand at 61-67, and 67, 10 and a half games back of the last wildcard spot in the American League, losing four games in a row and a three and seven in the last 10, you obviously have a different opinion on Perimanesian and his decision at the trade deadline. But you can't look back in hindsight. And if you do look back in hindsight, you can't always just say, oh, I would have done this or oh, I would have done that. Because at that point, at the trade deadline, some people did agree with his decision to buy. Not everybody. It was still a hot take to most people. But now everybody's looking back just critiquing him. But you got to look at it from the other side. We've all made mistakes. We all look back in time and say, oh, I wish I would have done this and I wish I would have done that. But the reality of life is you can't ever go backwards. You can only go forwards. You can't mend your misses in the past. You got to just keep going and building for the future. You can't let all of your mistakes in the past stop you from trying to get to where you want to go in the future. And the Angels obviously know they've missed in years past on contracts, including Anthony Rendon, including Albert Pujols years ago. They know they've missed on Justin Upton. They know they've missed on trying to put as much talent around Shelly Otani and Mike Trout as possible. And that's why this past offseason, they were a lot more dedicated to adding talent to their roster. The same thing goes with the way they've been drafting. They've been trying to draft young prospects from college baseball that were closer to getting to the major leagues. And that's why the Angels have been very aggressive at calling up top prospects because they want to get as much talent as possible around Otani and Trout. 
They want to do right around those two superstars and put as much talent in the same lineup as those two guys. And that's why they just called up Nolan Chanuel six weeks after he was drafted in the first round. And it's kind of worked out for them. He's been a very good hitter for them. But they just keep adding talent to their roster because they want to put as much talent around Otani and Trout as possible. And that's the best decision to make. You want to put as much talent around these two guys so they can still compete and still go out there and try to win and try to make it to October, which these two guys, as I've said now a million times, deserve to make it to October more than any players in the game of baseball. And that's why I feel bad for this Angels team because they are cursed. They are cursed. You can never look back and say that you knew Shoei Otani was going to go down to this point in the season with an elbow injury. I don't think many people saw them going 5-15 and 15 in that 20-game stretch since the trade deadline. I don't think anybody saw Otani and Trout both going down in the same day going back on the IL for Trout and then Otani being done for the air pitching. I don't think that's really anything that people could foreshadow and see that was going to be possible in the future. Maybe people could have seen them falling apart in August since the schedule was very tough in August, which I noted during my trade deadline predictions. I said, I know the schedule is tough in August, but you still have to try to buy when you have those two talents in the game of baseball and you're as close as you've ever been to making the playoffs with Otani and Trout on the same roster. But now everyone's going to look back and rip Manazian. And at the end of the day, the way I see it is he's been just trying to put talent around these two guys. And has it worked? No, because they just have had very poor luck with injuries, guys not producing. It's a mix of everything. But you have the two best talents in the game of baseball that go down in the same day. I mean, there's no other way to put it. The Angels are cursed. And this is something I mentioned over the last few weeks, talking about Manazian at the trade deadline. I talked about everything he's lost over the past year and everything he's added over the past year to his major league roster. If you look at what the Angels lost from July 2022 to July 2023, the Angels lost Noah Syndergaard, in a trade, Rizel Iglesias in a trade, Brandon Marsh in a trade, Edgar Caro and Kai Bush. Bush and Caro, they're two top prospects that they sent to Chicago in the Lucas Giolito deal. But what do they add from July 2022 to July 2023? They added Lucas Giolito, even though that really didn't work out. They added a pitcher to their rotation because they needed pitching help. A guy that's been great in years past, even though he has struggled a little bit this season with Chicago before he's traded to Anaheim, and now has been even worse with the Angels. They went out and they tried. Reliever Reynaldo Lopez, who has been solid for the Angels. They also added Mickey Moniak at the trade deadline last year. Logan O'Hoppy as well. Right-handed pitcher Ben Joyce, which was a former draft pick of theirs. Same thing with Zach Neto. Infielder Brandon Drury they added in the offseason. Gio Urshela, third baseman, added him in free agency. Starting pitcher Tyler Anderson added him in free agency. Hunter Renfro added him in free agency. Also added in Nolan Shanuel over the past week or so. You don't know how good you can be in the current moment like at the trade deadline, if you don't buy and fix some of the holes in your team with reinforcements. Yes, some of the holes can be fixed with players coming back like Mike Trout, but they also had some holes in the starting rotation, which is the reason they went and they added Lucas Giolito because they thought, hey, let's go and try to add to this rotation and try to help ourselves get to October. They chose to go all in, and I still respect that because it takes guts to do what Manazian did. Nobody really agreed with them at the time with the decision to buy. There were some people that agreed, but not many. It was definitely more people that disagreed with him than agreed. But now it's the whole world against Manazian and the Angels. And obviously, things didn't work out. But you can't really foreshadow Lucas Giolito having a 6.67 ERA with the Angels. You can't see Randall Grigic having a 42 OPS plus with the Angels. The league average OPS plus is 100. Randall Grigic's OPS plus right now is 42 with the Angels. Eduardo Escobar's 64 OPS plus since being acquired by the Angels. CJ Krohn. 54 OPS plus since being acquired by the Angels. And like I just noted, 100 is the league average for the OPS plus statistic. But he did do pretty well with getting Reynaldo Lopez. 
a guy that has a 1.86 ERA with the Angels. And the Mike Moustakis was a solid add. He has a 104 OPS plus, a 104 OPS plus with the Angels. But if you look back in time, on July 27th, Shohei Otani said that he wanted to stay in Anaheim. He wanted to win with his current team and preferred staying with the Angels than being dealt at the trade deadline. So that also left Paramanesian in a predicament because he saw the Angels obviously three games out and Otani said he wanted to stay, which means Otani's buying in on this team as well. He wanted to win with this current team and preferred staying with the Angels than going elsewhere and fighting for another contender to try to win a World Series. So not only did Manasian buy in on this team, but Shohei Otani did as well. He thought the Angels had a chance and he wanted to stay with the Angels for the rest of the season. And now that's going to be the most criticized move in the game of baseball since Babe Ruth. If the Angels end up losing him at the trade deadline and ended up trading him, they would have got back a great return. But the decision to keep him, now the Angels have no option but to bring him back because if they let him leave in free agency and get nothing in return, it's going to be the most criticized move since the Red Sox decided to trade Babe Ruth. And when the Red Sox decided to trade Babe Ruth in 1920 to the New York Yankees, the Yankees ended up winning 26 World Series after that before the Red Sox won again in 2004. The Angels now have 27 World Series. They won in 2009. But the Yankees won 26 World Series after the Red Sox traded Babe Ruth to the Yankees, before the Red Sox won again. The Yankees won 26 World Series between 1923 and 2000. The Red Sox didn't win until 2004. So the Yankees had 26 World Series in that time window from 1923 to 2003. The Red Sox won their first in 2004 since trading Babe Ruth. So obviously, that was the most criticized move in baseball history. And if the Angels decide to trade Shohei Otani, that probably would have been criticized. Whether the Angels trade him or not, they were going to be criticized no matter what they did. Perry Manezian was in a lose-lose situation here. He was in a lose-lose scenario where the Angels had no chance of winning. If they trade Shohei Otani, they'd be ripped to shreds by the fans. The front office would be ripped to shreds by the fans saying you traded the best talent that the game of baseball has seen since Babe Ruth. If you decide to keep them and you don't make the playoffs with them, you're ripped to shreds because you could have gotten back a great return. Perry Manasian was in a lose-lose situation here and had no option but just to do what he thought was best, and that was to buy the trade deadline. And I still stand by that. Once again, I've said it now a million times. I'll stick up for him more than anybody probably has in the United States over the last 24 hours. I've been sticking up for him a ton because I don't think it's his fault at the end of the day. He did what he thought was best with this team and trying to buy. Otani bought into this team as well. He could have said, I want to be traded on July 27th. No. He said he wanted to stay and try to win with this current team rather than contend for another team. And as I've already said now multiple times, your vision's always going to be 2020 in hindsight. Trading Otani meant you gave up on re-signing him. Even if the chances are minimal at the trade deadline of your chance of re-signing him, you can't not at least try. You can't say, oh, we'll trade him at the trade deadline and just give up on trying to re-sign him. Especially when you're three games back at the trade deadline of the wild card and you're a franchise that has been thirsting for a postseason run with the two best talents in the game of baseball in the 21st century, you can't say it was the right decision just to rip things up and you're only three games out. When you look back at hindsight, yes, everybody's going to say the Angels made the worst decision. But as I said now countless times, Perry Manasian was in a lose-lose situation there. He was going to be damned if he traded Shoei Otani and he was going to be damned if he decided to keep Otani like he did at the deadline. And the way I think about it is, you can't always look back and say, I would have done this and I would have done that. Because everybody's always going to be right looking back, but we've all made mistakes and looked back in time and said, oh, I wish I did this. And an interesting note about yesterday was that Otani was told he had a torn UCL before game two of their doubleheader, and he still chose to hit in that second game, like he did in 2018. He still hit for the Angels with the torn UCL. He always wants to be available for his teammates. I think he likes being with the Angels, and even though he 
may end up leaving in the offseason, which I still think the Dodgers are still the best destination for him. I'd say it's about a 50% chance he goes to the Dodgers. I'd say it's about a 30-35% chance of going back to Anaheim now. I think it went up over the last day with this injury. And something I've said now countless times, again and again on my radio show over the past two years, and on my podcast as well, is that I never took Shohei Otani and Mike Trout being on the same team for granted. I never took them being in the same lineup for granted. Something I never did was not appreciate the moment. Being able to watch them night in and night out on MLB Network and ESPN and being able to follow every game on my phone, being able to see them in person at Fenway Park this past year in April was truly an honor and a dream come true. Two of the best talents of my generation being in the same lineup hitting one after the other. And even though neither one had a great game that day at Fenway, being able to see them in person was something that I remember and cherish forever. As I said, two of the best talents that the game of baseball has ever seen. And where the Angels currently stand right now, they're 61-67. and 67, As I said, losing four straight and are now 10 and a half games back of the last wildcard spot. It's always sad to see, but they've just been plagued by bad news. Plagued by bad news after bad news after bad news. From Rendon's injury and that awful contract to Otani and Trout going down on the same day now. Brandon Drury getting hurt this season. Zach Neto going down earlier in the season. Gio Urshela being hurt and done for the year. Logan Hoppy going down in April. Ben Joyce and Sam Bachman going down earlier in the season. Two pitches that were looking like young, talented pitches for the Angels team, all going down at different times for different injuries. It's just been a tough stretch here for the Angels in the Otani and Trout era. I had them in the ALCS in my preseason predictions, and I know it was wishful thinking. I had them as a playoff team at the trade deadline. I bought into them buying the trade deadline. I said, okay, I think this team is going to make a run in the postseason. And mainly... Because I just wanted Trout and Otani to succeed together. I wanted to see those two guys competing in October. And even though it was wishful thinking, I believed in that team. And even though hot takes are part of the business, and I'll probably be told I'm wrong about saying Manasian wasn't wrong here buying at the trade deadline, you can't be afraid as a general manager or as a sports radio host or in any job in general. You can't be afraid of making a mistake because once you're afraid of making a mistake, you'll never be able to accomplish everything that you want to accomplish because you're already limiting yourself to what you already know is safe. If you're just doing everything that's safe always and not taking a risk, you're never going to accomplish something bigger and greater than, than you'd ever expect. You got to dream big sometimes. You got to buy big sometimes, just like Paramedia did at the trade deadline. And Manazian, at the end of the day, wasn't going to win. He was going to be damned and criticized if he bought at the trade deadline or if he sold at the trade deadline. If he kept Otani or he traded Otani, he had no chance at winning at the trade deadline. He had no chance in general. People were going to criticize him using hindsight vision no matter what he chose to do. But he chose to buy in on a team that had the two best talents in the game of baseball and had two players that had the chance of making history at any single moment they were in the same lineup together. Every single time that Otani and Trout took the field, there was a chance at history happening. Each and every night, they were in the same lineup. He chose to try to buy the trade deadline just to try to make that happen for the half a season to try to see all the magic happen in October. And I still respect that at the end of the day. He's going to be criticized. But if you want big rewards, you got to take big risks at the end of the day. He took a big risk buying at the trade deadline and keeping Otani. It's going to be even worse if Otani were to walk in free agency, but he can salvage the situation a little more and come back to ground a little bit with people that are very much against him if he were to keep Otani in free agency. If you trade Otani at the trade deadline, he's not coming back in free agency. If you keep him at the trade deadline, your goal is to try to keep him in free agency, try to keep him as an angel long-term. I think the chances went up over the last day or so, and I think the Angels still would give him a big contract, but I think now it's going to be less years. I don't think he's going to get the 8-10 to 10 year deal he might have been thinking. If he doesn't pitch until 2025, he'll be 31 years old when he pitches in 2025. There's a chance he'll only get a 5-6 to six year deal maybe. 
And we'll see what the money turns out to be, which I'll have more predictions about that in the future. But in this episode right here, I just want to spill my guts and give you guys my full opinion on the whole entire Otani, Trout, and Angels, and Perry Manazian situation. And I'm sure you guys get the gist now, 25 minutes into me rambling about everything that I feel like is wrong with the Angels situation. And not with them buying. I don't still see that as a problem still. I feel like the perception around them buying is wrong because everybody's looking back using hindsight vision. But you've already got that point now if you've already listened 28 minutes in. So now I'm going to transition and talk about the Red Sox and their series sweep against the Yankees this past weekend in the Bronx. I'll also talk about what happened in the first three games in this series against the Houston Astros where the Red Sox lost the first two, ended up recovering last night with a gutsy win. I'm going to start off talking about the Red Sox series with the Yankees, though. They end up outscoring the Yankees 22-9 in that three-game stretch. Even hit around Garrett Cole, the Yankees' ace, in their game on Saturday. I'll talk about Friday, though, what happened in that game first. The Sox won that game 8-3. They were up 7-0 after the first two innings of the game. Justin Turner got things going in the first inning with an RBI single, which was followed by a Masataki Yoshida three-run home run. In the second inning, RBI hits from Rafael Devis, Justin Turner, and Masataki Yoshida put the Red Sox up 7 to nothing. Aaron Judge was the Yankees' full offense yet again in this game. It's kind of been the storyline over the last season or so with the Yankees. Just been everything they've had in the 2023 season on offense. And when he did go down with an injury, you saw how poor that lineup was without him. And even with them in the lineup, they're still struggling. But they did get the win last night, luckily, to end their nine-game losing streak. But just to get back to the point here about Judge, he was the Yankees' full offense in that game on Friday. Had a home run in that game. A two-run shot in the bottom of the eighth inning. The Yankees end up losing that game, though, 8-3. to Brian Bay was strong for the Sox. Six innings on the mound, giving up six hits, one earned run, four strikeouts, and one walk. Garrett Whitlock had a shaky relief outing in that game on Friday. Two innings pitched, giving up two hits, five strikeouts, and a home run allowed. The Sox, one through four hitters in that game were Rafael Devis, who hit second, Verdugo hit leadoff, then Devis hit second, Justin Turner hit third, and Yoshida hit fourth. So one through four was Verdugo, Devis, Turner, and Yoshida. And those one through four hitters were 11 of 18 combined with two doubles, a home run, eight runs batted in, and seven runs scored. Doogie, Devis, and Turner all had three hits apiece. Then on Saturday, the bats stayed hot again for the Red Sox. Different guys were hot in this game. Then on Friday night, the Red Sox ended up winning this game on Saturday, 8-1. to Garrett Cole only lasted four innings on the mound for the Yankees, giving up seven hits, six earned runs, two home runs allowed, four strikeouts, and one walk. Rafael Devis had two more hits against him. Devis has been crushing Garrett Cole over his career with the Yankees. Cutter Crawford was brilliant on the mound for the Red Sox in this game on Saturday, going six innings, giving up just one hit, a home run to Aaron Judge being the only hit he allowed, five strikeouts, two walks on 82 pitches. The Yankees only had two hits in the entire game. The Red Sox had 12 hits, including three from Rafael Devis, who hit a home run in that game, two from Adam Duvall, and three from Pablo Reyes. Connor Wong also had a home run in that game as well. The Sox had a grand slam from Luis Arias against Garrett Cole to start the scoring 4 to nothing in the second inning. That was Arias' second grand slam in his last two swings. He became the first Red Sox player to hit grand slams on consecutive swings in 83 years. Grand slams on consecutive swings. Been a great acquisition here with the Red Sox. Even though he struggled with Milwaukee, he's been pretty good for the Red Sox since being acquired by the Red Sox at the trade deadline. The bottom three hitters in the Red Sox lineup in that second game against the Yankees were Pablo Reyes, Kona Wong, and Luis Arias. All three of those guys combined for 5-11 at the plate. Five hits and 11 at-bats with a double, two home runs, seven runs batted in, and five runs scored. On Sunday, a different story here for this Red Sox team. It was more of a close, gutsy win for this team on Sunday. The Sox are up 1-0 after Rafael Devis' home run in the first inning. 
Then Kyle Higashioka hit a solo homer for the Yankees, tied up 1-1. The Sox were tied 2-2 after Gleyber Torres hit a solo shot in the bottom of the sixth inning for the Yankees, tying it up 2-2 going into the seventh. In the top of the seventh, Justin Turner hit a massive three-run home run for his 20th home run of the season. Unfortunately, the Sox tried to blow this game with John Schreiber coming in in relief, giving up a three-run home run to Anthony Volpe, which ended up tying the game 5-5 in the bottom of the seventh. Then Justin Turner has been the clutch hitter he's been all season, coming up to the plate and having the game-winning hit for the Red Sox with a double in the top of the ninth inning to score Pablo Reyes. He's barely been walking with the foot injury, but he's been playing through it and finding ways to be productive at the plate. This has been his best season at the plate offensively, and he's 38 years old. Arguably his best season at the plate, and he's been playing through a foot injury now for the last couple weeks. An injury that should have put him out on the IL for about a month or so, but he's playing through it because he knows the Red Sox need to win games right now, and he knows how important he is to this Red Sox lineup. Then Kenley Jansen came in and closed the door for the Red Sox, picking up two strikeouts in the ninth inning and picking up another save. Chris Martin pitched a scoreless eighth inning, did give up two hits, but got out of it. He picks up the win in that game on Sunday. Alex Cora's postgame presser was interrupted by a fired-up Kenley Jansen who wanted Alex Cora to talk to the team in the locker room. The Red Sox were fired up after that game, considering it was a gutsy win. They swept the Yankees in all three games in the Bronx. It was definitely some momentum going into their four-game series against the Houston Astros. And so we're now heading into this four-game series against the Astros. I thought the Red Sox would split the series. I thought there was a chance that the Red Sox could actually win three or four. And even though that was wishful thinking, I thought there was a chance the Red Sox could win three or four in the series. Obviously, now it's not possible. But with the Red Sox having a very hard 10-game stretch with four games at Houston, three at home versus the Dodgers, and three at home versus Houston, I said if the Red Sox go 7-3 and three or even 6-4 and four in that 10-game stretch, that would be a win. Because one thing the Red Sox have done well this season is played good teams well all season long. The Sox were 7-3 and three in their last 10 games heading into Houston, while Houston was 4-6 and six heading into their last 10 games into the series against the Red Sox. So heading into Houston, the Red Sox had a lot of games left against some good teams. 25 of their 38 remaining games before the series against Houston were against teams that were in the playoffs before their series began in Houston. So that means 66% of the Red Sox remaining games were against playoff teams. The next closest in the American League was the Rangers. They had 45% of their remaining games heading into this current series against teams that were in the playoffs. The Orioles had just 18% of their remaining games against playoff teams. The Astros at 24%. So they obviously have an easier schedule going into September and going into playoff baseball in October. So we'll see how things work out in the American League. But considering the Astros and the Orioles have an easy schedule with remaining games, you'd imagine the Orioles are obviously a lock now to make the playoffs, probably end up being the one seed in the American League. The Astros still are fighting which they'll still end up making the playoffs realistically, but as the way things stand right now, the Seattle Mariners have closed the gap with them. And the same thing with the Rangers, even though the Rangers have been struggling as of late, that AL West is going to be something to watch going into September. So now I'm going to give you a breakdown of what happened in games one and two against the Astros. Poor defense was the story of both games for the Red Sox. With two errors for the Red Sox on Monday night and three on Tuesday night, on Monday the Red Sox struggled at the plate. They left 11 runners on base on Monday night, and with 3 of 18 with runners in scoring position, losing that game 9-4, to James Paxson was lit up, 6 earned runs, 9 hits allowed, 4 strikeouts, 3 walks, and 4 innings pitched. He is now 7-4 on the season with a 3.79 ERA, even though he has been getting hit around a little bit as of late. He still has been the Red Sox' most consistent pitcher all season long. Adam Duvall had his 12th home run in that game and was 3-5 with 3 RBIs and a double. He's starting to get hot, and when he gets hot, he's one of the most dangerous hitters in the game of baseball, even though it doesn't happen very often. Like we saw in the first week of the season, when he was hot and he was on, he was impossible to get out. He's starting to get back on track and get back to those ways, which the Red Sox really need that right now more than anything. Alex Verdugo was 3-5 in that game with a run scored in his 32nd double of the season. Chaz McCormick was a killer for the Red Sox on the night. 
going two for five for the Astros with two home runs, four runs batted in. Every player in Houston's lineup on Monday night had a hit. Bregman was three for three. Jeremy Payne was two for five. It was a tough night for the Red Sox. They ended up losing that game nine to four. Now going into Tuesday, the Red Sox lost this game seven to three. Kyle Tucker had a two-run home run for Houston in the first inning, his 25th home run of the season. Ten Hulk got the start for the Red Sox on the mound. Did okay in his first outing since coming back from the facial fracture he suffered in June. Five innings, he went four hits allowed, three earned runs, a home run allowed, two strikeouts, three walks. Justin Verlander pitched for the Astros, going six innings, giving up five hits, no earned runs, nine strikeouts, one walk, and 96 pitches on the mound. He's back to the vintage Justin Verlander we knew of old with the Astros. Another hot night, though, for Adam Duvall at the plate, who is 2-4 for four with another home run. The issue, though, with Game 1 and Game 2 against the Astros is that the Red Sox were 4-28 of 28 with runners in scoring position in those two games. 4-28 for 28 with runners in scoring position in the first two games of the series. They have 21 runners on base in Game 1 and Game 2 in the series against Houston. And the Red Sox, sensing urgency, knew they had to turn things around, and last night got a gutsy win. 7-5 win. And Alex Cora is sensing the urgency as well. He was ejected on Tuesday night for the second time in three games. Tuesday night, he was thrown out for arguing balls and strikes. And as I said, that was the second time in three games that he was thrown out, arguing balls and strikes. He senses urgency. The Red Sox sense the urgency as well. They know they got to turn things around. Obviously, frustration hits at some point. But the Red Sox know their manager has their back, and he's arguing balls and strikes with them. So even though Corey gets thrown out, the team knows he's sticking up for them. But last night, the Red Sox got a very gutsy win, winning that game against Houston 7-5. The Red Sox were five games back of the last wildcard spot in the American League heading into last night. But with Toronto and Seattle both losing last night and the Red Sox beating Houston, the Red Sox gained a game on Toronto, Seattle, and Houston. And are now only four games back of the last wildcard spot in the AL heading into today. Chris Sale pitched last night for the Red Sox, going five innings on the mound, giving up six hits, four earned runs, a home run, nine strikeouts, one walk, and 80 pitches. Did come out after just 80 pitches, but that was the game plan going into the night. He was on a pitch count. Alex Redugo was 2-5 in the game with an RBI and a double. Now I'm going to break down some of the biggest situations in the game. With first and second for the Astros and one out in the bottom of the seventh, Alex Bregman popped it up in foul ground. Connor Wong tries to go for it. He ends up running into Bregman. Ends up being bad as interference anyways, so it would have been an out no matter what. But Garrett Whitlock makes a tremendous sliding catch and foul ground. Ends up popping up right off the ground to make sure no runners advance. And that did bring some momentum to that Red Sox team. They see their pitcher going all out, trying to make plays defensively, throwing his body out there, making a great catch that no one expected at all. That was a great play by Whitlock. Credit to him, even though it was going to be bad as interference anyways. It's obviously something that did give the Red Sox some momentum. Now going into the bottom of the eighth. The Astros had runners on first and third with a tough ground ball hit between the gap between shortstop and third base. There's two outs at this point. Two outs, runners on first and third. Trevor Story ranged for it across his body, finds it, and makes a great throw in the air across his body for the third out. A pivotal moment in the game because a run would have scored and his defense saved the Red Sox a run. And his defense has been an upgrade, which everybody knew he was going to be better defensively than what Kiki Hernandez brought to the Red Sox this year. But he also helped offensively last night as well. Even though he's been struggling at the plate over the last two weeks or so, he did have two hits last night. But in that big moment there, two outs, the Red Sox needed that out, and he made a great throw. Now there's no concern about his elbow, considering how strong of a throw that was over there to Tristan Costa at first base. Red Sox get out of the inning, going into the ninth inning with a tie game. So then, in the bottom of the ninth inning, Kenley Jensen comes in for the Red Sox, and... It was a tough situation for the Red Sox. He ends up recording just one out, which ends up being the only out he records on the night. He ends up leaving with a leg injury. Landed awkwardly after one of the pitches. He comes out. So then it's an emergency outing here for Nick Pavetta. Coming out of the bullpen, not warmed up. 
comes out, walks the first batter he faces in Jose Altuve, and then strikes out the next two batters. Was absolutely locked in, striking out Alex Bregman and Kyle Tucker, sending the Red Sox to the top of the 10th inning with a tie game. Two strikeouts, two outs. He was fired up, and the Red Sox needed it. All the momentum and energy the Red Sox needed. Then, top of the 10th inning. Adam Duvall follows the ball off the back of his ankle. Goes down for a minute or two, takes a second, gets back at the baddest box, and it's a three-run home run on the next pitch he faces. Making it three straight games, he's hit a home run in. He's hit a home run in all three games in this series against Houston. Another big night for Adam Duvall. Like I said, when he's hot, he's hot. He was 2-4 for four last night, three runs batted in, a walk and a home run, his 14th of the season. Ends up being the biggest hit for the Red Sox in winning this game. A gutsy win for the Red Sox. Josh Winkowski comes in at the bottom of the 10th inning to get the game finished out for the Sox, even though the Astros did have some guys on base and did threaten a little. The Sox end up winning the game. Gutsy win, nevertheless. And the Sox now play today at 2.10 p.m. It'll be Brian Bayo on the mound for the Red Sox. He's 9-7 on the year with a 3.7 ERA and a 1.26 whip. First, J.P. France for the Astros, who is 9-4 on the season with a 2.75 ERA and a 1.21 whip. The Sox have the second hottest remaining schedule in the game of baseball left on the season. They have seven games versus Baltimore, three versus the Dodgers, five versus the Rays, three versus the Blue Jays, four versus Houston left, and three versus Texas. They need to start finding ways to win games. If they can split this series with the Astros, that would be a win at the end of the day. They still have three more games against the White Sox and three versus Kansas City. But at the end of the day, if they were to find a way to split the series against Houston, that would be a win. And ultimately, would be great going into the series this coming weekend against the Dodgers at Fenway Park. So now I'm going to transition to talking about the Yankees, who actually just ended a nine-game losing streak with a win last night. That was their longest losing streak in 41 years for the pinstripes. Luckily ending it last night with a huge win, though, and a huge game from Yankees captain Aaron Judge, who willed the Yankees a victory last night 9-1 to over the Washington Nationals. And if you look at where the Yankees stood on July 4th, they were 48-38. and Since that day, the Yankees are 13-27 in their last 40 games. 13-27 since July 4th. Things have just not gone the Yankees' way in the second half of the season, where they currently stand last in the American League East, nine and a half games back of the last wildcut spot in the AL, and they are 61-65 overall. Luis Severino, though, was great last night. Back to form, going six and two-thirds innings pitched, giving up a hit, two strikeouts, two walks, and 97 pitches. He looked like the Luis Severino of old, the Luis Severino of 2018 and 2019 before he went down with injuries. Aaron Judge was three for four in the game with three home runs, his first career three-run home run game ever, which is very impressive. Six runs batted in, and he's now up to 27 home runs on the year, which is great considering how many games he missed. And if you want to compare how good he's been this season in 72 games and what he did in the last season in the first 72 games, it's pretty similar. And Aaron Judge's 72 games this season, he has 27 home runs, 54 runs batted in, 55 runs scored, and a 1051 OPS. Through his first 72 games of last season, he had 28 home runs, so one more home run, 58 runs batted in, four more runs batted in last year than this year in the first 72 games. 60 runs scored, so five more runs scored last year, and a 10.06 OPS. So his OPS is 45 points higher this year in his first 72 games than it was last year in his first 72 games. So even though Judge was out for a lot of the season, he's been the Yankees' only bright spot in the lineup. So now I'm going to transition and talk about the Washington Nationals, who've been playing great baseball over the last month. They just gave Davey Martinez, their manager, a two-year contract extension, and they're expected to give Mike Rizzo, the GM, a two-year extension as well. 
Martinez took over the club in 2018, ended up winning the World Series in 2019 heroically. They actually started the season 19-31, and ended up going on a crazy run in the National League, beating the Brewers, Dodgers, Cardinals, and Astros in the World Series for their first World Series title in franchise history. It's been a bumpy last three to four years, though, for the Nationals with a lot of changes, losing Bryce Hopper and Anthony Rendon in free agency, losing Juan Soto in a trade, Max Scherzer in a trade, Trey Turner in a trade, Josh Bell in a trade, Kyle Schwarber in a trade. They've lost a lot of talent over the last few seasons. But with that being said, there's positivity around this Nationals team, a team that sits at 58-69 and 69 right now. They've already had three more wins this season than they had all last season. They had 55 wins last season. They already have three more wins this year than they did last season. And they had 20-10 and 10 in their last 30 games played which is tied for the third best record in baseball over the last 30 games. So there's a lot to look forward to in the future of D.C. baseball. And if you look at Mike Rizzo, he's been with the Nationals since 2009 as the GM. He took over as president of baseball operations and the GM in 2013. So he's the GM since 2009, then taking over not only the GM role, but also the president of baseball operations role as well in 2013. He won the World Series as well in 2019. Same thing goes for Martinez. And is building a nice core there in Washington. C.J. Abrams is only 22 years old. Mackenzie Gore is 24 years old. And they also have a lot of young talent coming up in the next year or so, including Dylan Cruz and James Wood, the number four and number seven overall prospects on MLB.com. Also, they have Robert Hassel III, who's going to be up in a year or two, an outfielder that was the eighth overall pick in the 2020 draft to the San Diego Padres. Wood, Hassel, Abrams, Gore, and Holland Susana were all returns in that deal for Juan Soto. It ends up being a deal that turned the franchise around. Now they have a lot of young pieces to build around. And I know a lot of people are going to compare the Juan Soto situation with the Shohei Otani situation, but it's very different. Soto had two and a half years left to control when Washington traded him, and he was offered $440 million, and he declined it. So the Washington Nationals knew he wasn't going to stay. Here's the difference with Otani. He was a pending free agent at the deadline, but the Angels knew if they traded him, he was not coming back. So they kept a glimmer of hope with only being three games out of the trade deadline. They tried to go for it now. So it's not really the same situation with the Nationals trading Soto and thinking, oh, you're going to get the same return back for Otani. Even though you probably would have gotten back a great return. The Nationals, when they traded Soto, they offered him $440 million. He declined it. And the Nationals were nowhere near competing. There's a difference. The Angels haven't offered Shoei Otani an extension yet. That's going to be this offseason. And they also are three games back of the last wildcard spot on an expiring contract for the greatest player in the game of baseball this season. And honestly, the greatest talent baseball seen since Babe Ruth. So it's a very different situation. Otani never declined a massive offer like Soto, so it's not the same situation. Rizzo decided to cash in, get a great return back. As for Manazian and the Angels, they decided to go all in for now. And as you know from listening already to this episode, you know I support the Angels in the decision to buy. Two completely different situations in two different circumstances of where each club stood. Now I'm going to transition to talking about Julio Rodriguez, who was on a crazy stretch over the last week. Over a four-game stretch this past week, he was 17 of 22 at the plate with two home runs, eight runs batted in, and five stolen bases. His 17 hits are the most in a four-game span since at least 1901 per MLB.com. His 17 hits are the most in a four-game span since at least 1901. He was 4 for 6, 5 for 5, 4 for 5, and 4 for 6 in those four games. With two of those games coming against Kansas City and two versus Houston, regardless of who he's playing against, though, it's not easy to go 17 of 22 in the major leagues. It's not easy at any level to go 17 of 22. Doing it in the major leagues is just ridiculous. Safe to say, though, J-Rod has found his groove at the plate. And he's a big reason the Mariners are capable of making a run and have a wildcard spot right now in the AL. There's a reason they're above Toronto right now in the AL wildcard race. And partly is because of how great J-Rod's been. And also they have a good, talented roster as well. 
But also a big reason the Mariners are capable of making a run this season is because of how easy of a schedule they have remaining. They have six games versus Oakland left and three versus Kansas City. Nine games remaining against Oakland and Kansas City. They do have some hard games, though, as well. Seven games versus Texas, four versus Tampa Bay, three versus the Dodgers, three versus Houston, three versus Cincinnati. As with Toronto, they have the fifth easiest schedule remaining, so an even easier schedule than Seattle with three games versus Oakland, three versus Cleveland, three versus Colorado, three versus Washington, and six versus the New York Yankees. But the Toronto Blue Jays still have six versus Tampa Bay and four versus Texas. We'll see how things work out there. Texas has been very cold, though, as of late. They're 72-54 and overall, so they're still in good standings. But they're only one game up on Houston heading into today, and they are 15-15 and in the last 30 games played, losing six games in a row in a 3-7 and in the last 10 games. Now they start a four-game set versus the Minnesota Twins. I think they'll be all right at the end of the day. I still believe that this Texas Rangers team has the most talented roster in the game of baseball. I still think they make a run in the American League and win the AL. They still have to figure things out and get back on track, but I think they're too talented to be struggling this much. I don't think anybody expects them to be losing six games in a row and being 3-7 and seven in the last 10 games, but luckily, they still have time to get back on track. They're not doing this at the end of September going into October baseball. They're doing this at the end of August, which you never want to have a cold streak like this, but if you're going to have a cold streak, you'd rather be doing it a month before the playoffs begin than be doing it going into the playoffs. They still have a month to get back on track and figure things out. I still believe in this Rangers team. As for the Red Sox, game four of that series today against Houston, the Red Sox need to win this game. This is a do-or-die game for the Red Sox. Splitting against Houston would be huge. If they, if they can go 6-4 and four in that 10-game stretch against Houston in the Dodgers, that would be quite a win for this Red Sox team. 7-3 would be obviously unreal. But that means the Red Sox can only lose one more game between today, three games against the Dodgers, and three games against the Astros. That's obviously wishful thinking. But if the Red Sox could somehow win today, take two of three against the Dodgers, and then take two of three against the Astros in that next series, that would be huge. That would be a 6-4 and four stretch over that 10-game period where nobody really expected them to win six games. If they could do that and find a way to keep themselves in postseason contention, that would be huge. We'll see how things work out for the Red Sox, but I think they win today's game and split this series against Houston, and then they'd be going into Fenway Park with Mookie Betts returning, and the Dodgers coming into town with Kike Hernandez, Ryan Brazier, J.D. Martinez, all coming to Boston. It's like a homecoming for the Dodgers and the Red Sox. The Red Sox have a fair share of Dodgers as well. Kenley Jansen, Chris Martin, Justin Turner, Alex Rodugo, Connor Wong as well was a minor league player for the Dodgers regardless, but there's a lot of talent that's been on the Dodgers and the Red Sox. They've found ways to trade players and players going left and right between LA and Boston. So it's like a homecoming for both teams at the end of the day. It should be a fun series to watch. I'll preview that series tomorrow. But anyways, I will conclude this episode. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen to this. As always, I appreciate it and hope you guys have a good one. Thank you, and I will see you guys in the next episode.